Lori McDevitt of Advocacy for the Special Ones in Your Life has been a certified special education advocate for 30 years. Lori brings her wealth of knowledge and experience to the IEP team, partnering with parents to navigate the process of special education. In this podcast series, Lori speaks with colleagues from the educational field, addressing a variety of issues. Her hope is that these conversations will both inform and inspire parents. Well, good afternoon, listeners. I'm Lori McDevitt, and I'm the founder of Advocacy for the Special Ones in Your Life, and I'm an advocate who attends meetings with school meetings with parents um, who are parents of special needs children. And I'm here today with Sarah Reichert. Sarah is um, from the Chamberlain Reichert Law Group um, out of Oak Brook, Illinois. And I say that to just kind of legitimize um, Sarah that she's an attorney, she knows what she's talking about. And today we're gonna to be talking about all the questions about estate planning and special needs um, planning for um, families of students with special needs. And Sarah's gonna just share her expertise with us. She is gonna answer questions that I have so that I can better understand, you know, trusts and first party trusts and third party trusts and guardianship and decision making and so, Sarah, I'm going to allow you to just introduce yourself, and then we're going to go into a Q&A time. So, um, listeners, just kind of put on your seatbelts and take notes, and uh, we'll also put Sarah's information into the podcast. So, if you have any questions um, or if you want documents or anything shared with you, just reach out to share Sarah, and she is more than willing to share them with you. So, Sarah, go ahead and just tell us a little bit about who you are and why you're so passionate about this subject. Of course, thank you so much, Lori, for the warm introduction. I'm glad to be able to talk with you this afternoon and answer some questions. I've been an attorney since 2007. It has always been a passion of mine to be involved with families and individuals with disabilities. I have personal connections to the community, um, you know, as well as through my family and through my career, actually starting very young. Um, and even in college and continuing on. So this was a natural segue into my professional career for me. And this is absolutely a passion of ours here at the law firm. Um, I, my law partner, Darcy Chamberlain, has been doing this work for a very long time as well. So this is something that's important to us to make sure people understand the tools that are available to them and have the opportunity to put them to work. They're available. Let's use them. Absolutely. And part of the reason it is important to me is because it's important to you. It's important to my listeners. I have been asked this question more than one time to say, hey, who do you know? Do you got a person that I can talk to when it comes to special needs planning? And I found a person. So I've got Darcy and Sarah on my side and they can be on your side and they're here to educate no matter you know what attorney group you pick. Um, we want you to be educated and we want you to take action more than anything. So, Sarah, I'm just going to go ahead and share with our listeners that we felt like the best analogy is we're going to talk about like driving, that we're driving down a road. And while we're driving down that road through your child's life, at any point, we could intersect with third party trust planning. And Sarah's going to talk a little bit about that. But at that magic age of 17, 17 and a half, before the child reaches 18, we need some decisions to be made. And at that point, we really need to make sure that the child is covered for 
um, financial reasons, medical reasons, and um, the child's own money reasons. And so we're going to talk a little bit about, um, you know, that, that ma magic age. For those of you who are in the you know IEP world and we attend meetings together, we know that age 17, you know, we talk about the age of majority and we talk about that during the next year, from an educational decision point of view, we need to make a decision. Who is going to be making the educational decisions once the student reaches 18? Will it be the parents or will it be the student? And there's paperwork that needs to be signed off on if that student is going to delegate those rights to the parents or whether or not the student is going to be making those decisions. And it's oftentimes a matter of conversation and then paperwork is signed and we know that when that child is 18, who is making the educational decisions. So we're gonna talk a little bit about what happens during that 17th year um, from a legal point of view when it comes to medical decisions and financial decisions as well. And that is part of the reason why I've asked Sarah here is kind of explain that to us and explain to us the why. Why is this important that it happened before the child reaches 18? So Sarah, do you want to go ahead and talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So when we are looking at um, someone who's about to become a young adult in Illinois, age 18 is the magic number. As parents, we know nothing magical happens at 18, but from a legal perspective on their 18th birthday, they are adults and can make their own decisions unless a court has determined otherwise or unless the individual themselves has given decision-making authority to someone. Now, how would they do that? Uh, if there is uh, the decisional capacity within the individual that they can choose who they want to make decisions for themselves, they can consider powers of attorney. The powers of attorney are authorizing an agent to act on their behalf, both for medical and or financial decision. The powers of attorney can be customized to only be making decisions that the individual wants someone to make for them. This is something that actually I talk with clients about even if their children don't have a disability because most kids at 18 aren't prepared to be handling all of their own finances or even want to do that. So we actually do these documents across the board for clients, but particularly for individuals with a disability, if they have the ability to make their own decisions, powers of attorney can be a great option. Illinois has also recently passed legislation that allows for supported decision-making agreements that came into effect in 2022. I personally haven't seen them widely used, but I do use them in my practice. I think they're a nice um, complement, I'll say, to the powers of attorney because it sort of legitimizes the relationship of the supporter and the principal under that agreement. So similar to a power of attorney, the principal is the individual seeking support from someone, and then you have someone in the role of the supporter. So for example, Lori, if I wanted you to be my supporter, I would ask you if you would be willing to sign because both individuals sign that document. And then for example, you would be able to go to the bank with me if I had trouble communicating with my personal banker and that would authorize them to release information to you that then you could discuss with me. 
the ultimate decision would still be mine, but I would be authorized to have you involved in the conversation versus the bank saying, no, we can only talk to the individual themselves. The supported decision-making agreement is only used when there's a developmental or intellectual disability um, under the law that we have here in Illinois, but again, kind of works hand in hand with those powers of attorney. If those options are not enough, meaning there's potential that the individual can make some decisions, but not all, then we start talking about guardianship. And guardianship in Illinois, there are alternatives with that as well. So starting with the least restrictive, it would be a limited guardianship. And that's where the individual has the ability to make, let's say they have the ability to make some daily decisions, what they're gonna eat. Um, maybe they can decide what classes they wanna take or um, some preferences regarding a day program or community classes that they would wanna take. But when it comes to more sophisticated decisions related to finances or complex medical decisions requiring informed consent, they can't make those decisions. And that's where we could craft a limited guardianship that would allow someone to come in and make that decision for them, generally a parent, uh, but still retains some rights to the individual themselves. Limited guardianships are really important if an individual is driving. So if someone is driving, I need them to have a limited guardianship and everything else can be with the guardian as far as authority to make decisions, but in order to have a driver's license, they have to be on a limited guardianship. The most restrictive option we have is really reserved for individuals who are not able to make any decisions for themselves. And that's what we would call a plenary guardianship. And the plenary guardianship, think of it as just a full guardianship. Why we use the word plenary, I don't know. <laughs> but it's really just a full guardianship. And that means the individual cannot make any of their own decisions. And so the guardian is appointed to actually make the decisions for them. Now, keeping that in mind, the role of the guardian is to make decisions in the best interests of the individual, uh, but it is also to take into account the individual's wishes if, as best they're able to express them. Um, and that, like I said, it's the most restrictive option. And so I've kind of talked us through starting with the least restrictive and working our way up to what would be the most restrictive. Wow. No, that's awesome, Sarah. And I think I want to use an example and you can feel free to kind of, you know, fill in the gaps with this, but I had a, a client um, who said, oh my gosh, you have to talk to your other clients about um, planning for their special needs kids. And I was like, okay, tell me more this, you know, you seem passionate about this. And he said, my 18 year old, got in a car accident and she was taken to the hospital and it was really really hard um, for the family because as an 18 year old she had decision making um, responsibility but she didn't have the capacity to be making these major medical decisions and they didn't have any paperwork and so the parents felt absolutely helpless the child is in a unique situation. She became dysregulated and it was it was not pretty at the hospital. And so, Sarah, you know, I know that's just one example where like, you know, the inside of me is like pleading to say, oh, my gosh, get get whatever you need to in order so that. If the unthinkable happens, 
um, and your and your family is put in a position at a hospital um, that you have all the paperwork and you can say, oh, we planned for the unexpected, here it is. So Sarah, maybe you can fill in the gaps with a situation like that where the parents felt absolutely helpless. Sure, of course. So when, when you're talking about those sudden situations where you need the authority to act on behalf of someone, that's exactly what we're trying to do is plan for the what ifs of life, right? I always have people come in and I warn them it's not really going to be a fun conversation because we're going to talk about a lot of unpleasant things that may come up. I hope they never do for people, but with what I do on a daily basis, I see the unfortunate situations. And this is true whether we're talking about an individual with a disability or not, which is why I'm also passionate about all 18-year-olds having these documents and having access to them. And with that in mind, um, again, I'm not necessarily here to sell my services. I just want to share information. And if you actually go on and Google Illinois Power of Attorney for Healthcare and Illinois Power of Attorney for Property, there are free forms online that families can use. There's nothing magical about the form. You don't have to have an attorney to do it. You just need the forms and they are available online so you can download them and print them. In January 2023, actually, we have new legislation that is even authorizing uh, the healthcare power of attorney to be presented in electronic form. So once you get that filled out, you can even keep a copy on a phone or an iPad and show that to the healthcare professionals, which of course, in the uh, situation you were describing, Lori, certainly would have been helpful because no one wants to be scrambling trying to find paperwork when you're in an emergency situation. It's just not what you want to be doing. In your example, Lori, I don't know if that family was here in Illinois, but assuming that they were, I guess I want to give everyone some peace of mind that we also have the Healthcare Surrogate Decision-Making Act. That means that if I were in an accident tomorrow, I am over the age of 18, obviously, um, but if I were in an accident tomorrow and I did not have an agent named as power of attorney and someone needs to be making decisions for me, the doctors are going to follow the Healthcare Surrogate Decision-Making Act I am married, so they would ask my husband. If I were not married, they would talk to my adult sibling. Um, and it kind of goes down the line as to who those decision makers are. Guardians are included in the hierarchy of decision making. So that can give some peace of mind, but there's no doubt that actually completing the forms and choosing the person that you want it to be is the best way to go and to kind of prevent those oh shoot situations where surprises are happening. Yes, absolutely. So yeah, thank you so much for that and giving, um, we'll put some of those links, you know, in the podcast um, description for those of you who didn't quite get it, but, or you need it later or, you know, whatever the situation is. So thank you for that. So we've talked a little bit about, hey, we're going down a road and the child, let's, let's back it up a little bit. We're going down the road and before the child becomes 17 or 18, we talked about there could be an intersection. There could be an intersection at any time where there is a third party trust. So can you talk a little bit about that, Sarah? And what is that all about? Of course. So when we're talking, I guess maybe let's back up even just a moment further and talk about special needs trust in the term generally. 
special needs trust is just a term of art that alone does not describe any particular trust itself so under that umbrella of special needs trust you have what we call first party special needs trust they also go by the name of an over trust or a payback trust and then we also have third party special needs trust the distinction between the two is that a first party trust has only money of the individual with a disability and a third party trust has money from anybody else other than the individual with a disability. So what we're talking about now with this intersection that could come at any point while you're going down the road is a third party special needs trust, meaning someone has left money that they want to benefit the individual with a disability. And that person could be the parents, it could be grandparents, aunts and uncles, anybody else who is leaving money intending it to care for that person with a disability. Most commonly you would see this with parents, but that third party trust is not usually funded until the death of the person who created it. In a, a typical third party situation um, or a typical family situation, you may be talking about the parents who have done their own estate planning because they know at some point they both are going to pass on and this individual with a disability is going to be left without a parent. And they're looking to, as a way to leave money to benefit them, but obviously there are services involved and those are often government funded services, SSI and Medicaid being the two most common that we talk about. Those are both means tested and they have asset and resource limitations to them. And so we need a way for that money to not impact those benefits and have the benefits taken away. So how we do that is by keeping that money in what the so-called third party special needs trust is. And again, it's just a term of art. It's a very um, sort of generic term that can be used to describe a trust that has discretionary standards for the trustee, meaning the beneficiary cannot force the trustee to leave money to them. They can't insist that they get monthly payments or regular payments out of the trust. The trustee is making decisions about how to spend that money and buying goods and services for the individual. So that's why we talk about at any point along the road, because again, you could have a grandparent who obviously may predecease the parents. And so that third party trust could come into existence at that point, or it could all funnel down to the parents and then the parents need to be doing that planning and leaving a third party trust so that at their eventual death, that money is held in trust for that beneficiary. Very good, then if, so explain that to me, Sarah, so help me to understand this. So let's say as a parent, I've created a trust and for my child with a disability and for children without disabilities, correct? There could be trusts for both and you're shaking your head yes. So, okay, so I could develop a trust at any path, um, you know, intersection along their age. And then who decides how that trust is spent? Would I decide that prior to my death? So the, the trustee ultimately that the, so let's back up, Lori, let's say you're gonna do some planning, okay? You and I have talked and, you're gonna set up a special needs trust to provide for your kids later on. You have a child with a disability and you have a child without. So we have provided for each of them, but now we're gonna focus on this special needs trust for the child with a disability. 
when we're talking about that trust, you are naming a person who is going to manage that money for that individual. And that is your trustee. You can change that throughout your lifetime. You are welcome to modify who that person is because today you might say it's my brother and then maybe he predeceases you or something else happens. And so you need to name a friend who mm -hmm. would serve in that role. Obviously, there's lots of considerations when choosing who's going to be that person. The most important, of course, being that they're trustworthy and you think they would actually do a good job of managing the money and caring for the beneficiary. You want to make sure they're actually going to look out for that person and not just spend the money on whatever or not spend the money, right? The idea is to use the money for the beneficiary. So you just want to choose someone in that role who you think best aligns with what your goals are. Now, as the creator of that trust, or who we would call a grantor or a settlor of that trust, you could also leave a letter of direction or what some people refer to as a letter of intent, where you are telling the trustee, these are my preferences, this is what I would like you to do, but that's not binding. Ultimately, the trustee is the one who is going to decide, but you can certainly express your wishes. And if you've chosen the right trustee, they would honor your wishes. Absolutely. No, I think that's really good. And then I know that um, I get confused and, and I'm going to guess that there's, there's at least one listener out there um, getting confused. So when you said that there's SSI out there, how and, and that a trust um, will not impact the disability income, can you talk about that just a little bit more clearly? Of course, of course. So when we're talking about social security benefits. We've got a couple of different types of benefits that are available. You have SSDI, which is Supplemental Security Disability Insurance. And then you have, uh, or excuse me, Social Security. See, I get confused too. Social <laughs> disability Insurance. And then you have SSI, that is Supplemental Security Income. Um, the SSDI is what all of us who are working pay into in FICA taxes, and that is an entitlement based on someone's work record. That could be the individual's own work record if they have enough work credits, or that could be based on a parent's work record if the parent has retire retired and they were deemed uh, disabled by Social Security prior to age 22. SSI, on the other hand, is meant for people of very limited income and means. So your asset uh, limitation on SSI is $2,000. The max benefit this year in 2022 is $841. So this is meant to um, essentially keep people from being impoverished. Obviously, preference would be to get SSDI if that's available to you. But if it's not, then we're talking about SSI. In Illinois, because at the age of 18, um, the child is considered an adult, there is no longer a legal responsibility for parents to pay for their children. So while we know we're not going to kick our kids out the door, um, the government recognizes that you are no longer legally obligated to pay or care for them. So that's why they become eligible to at least apply for SSI at the age of 18. To prepare to apply for SSI at age 18, you need to be aware of what your child has in assets in their own name. Social Security is going to look back three years. So by age 15, 
we need to be considering if someone has been gifting them savings bonds throughout their lifetime. That was a really popular gift for a while. Grandparents would send, you know, the kids a savings bond every yeah. Christmas or every yeah. birthday. And we put them in a drawer and we completely forgot about them. Yeah. <laughs> now is the time when we are talking about 14, 15 to be thinking, I have a pile of savings bonds for my child and I need to think about how we're going to handle those. If possible, we're going to get them out of the child's name so that we're not having the problem with SSI. Little life insurance policies are another one that I see come up. So like all the Gerber life commercials that we all used to see, you know, you'd be holding your cute little baby and the Gerber baby face would pop up and it'd be like, get your insurance policy for pennies a day. And people did that. And that's absolutely fine. But it's all those things that we tuck away and just kind of forget about. So at age 15, we need to kind of go through the mental file and think, what is it that could potentially be in my child's name that is an asset to them? $2,000 is nothing. That number has not changed since like 1976 or something. $2,000 in the 70s was a lot different than $2,000 today. So $2,000, you can get there very, very quickly, which is why we want to deal with them. Um, so once you go through that list of mental assets and the file cabinet that you have, figuring out what assets would be in their name, you're going to be in a much better position than when you turn 18 to actually go ahead and apply for SSI. Otherwise, when you turn 18, that's exactly what you're doing with the child. You're figuring out these are the assets in their name. Now, how do we deal with them? Mm -hmm. If minimal assets, you would want to look into an ABLE account. An ABLE account, best description I can kind of give to this is it's, it's like a hybrid. It's got some qualities that look like a first party special needs trust, but it's definitely not a first party special needs trust. An ABLE account is a nice way to save a little bit of money for the individual with a disability, but it's not going to count against SSI. Social security does not look at what's an enable account. There are qualifications to open enable account. You can only have one throughout the entire United States. So you can choose, we live in Illinois, you can pick the Illinois able account or you can pick a different state. Um, I used to recommend other states, but now Illinois has made some changes and I think the Illinois one is just fine. Um, so you would open up an ABLE account and you could take that money. Let's just say you've got $4,000 that's in the individual's name. You could take that $4,000 and you're going to put it in the ABLE account and then you can apply for SSI because SSI isn't going to look at the ABLE account. The rest of the requirements to have that ABLE account are that the person had an onset of disability prior to age 26, which if we're talking about an 18 year old, no problem there. Um, and then you have to certify that the individual does in fact have a disability. Obviously, if you are going to be able to qualify for SSI or SSDI, that is likely the case anyway. Um, or if there's a guardianship in place, there's lots of ways that you can certify. And most of the time online, they're still just asking for whoever is opening the account to click a button that says, I certify this person has a disability and qualifies. The ABLE account money can only be used for qualified disability expenses. Qualified disability expenses are determined by the IRS. What I can tell you is that the category is extremely broad. So 
while I always give that as a caveat or a potential downside of the ABLE account, the reality is it's not much of a limitation and it's still an amazing resource for families. That is great. So quick question with that one. What I heard you say earlier was there was um, a category that qualified under either intellectual disability or a developmental disability. When you're talking about the ABLE account, is it any disability or does it still need to be under the developmental disability or the intellectual disability? Any disability, um, the intellectual and developmental disability is really only a distinction that I make when we're talking about the uh, supported decision making agreement. Mm -hmm. And that's just because the legislator actually put that in as a requirement to use the supported decision making agreement. Got it. But these the, that ABLE account and talking about SSI, it can be any disability, correct? Correct. Okay. No, I, I, I appreciate that as well. So there. Again, I feel a little bit, like I told you, a little bit like a fire hose, but there's a whole lot of terms here. So yeah. if anybody in the audience is feeling that way, re-listen to the podcast, listen to it on, you know, half speed, um, really hear what Sarah is saying, or, you know, Sarah, you, you will be offering some documents. I know you've got um, a sheet with some terms and so forth. Tell us a little bit about what they could do if they have additional questions. And I know we haven't really even talked about first party trusts, which we will get to. But at this point, if somebody is just saying, oh my gosh, I wasn't listening as closely as I could have, should have, would have, um, tell us a little bit about where they could find some documents. Sure, of course. So I'm, I'm happy to provide documents for Lori to be able to post for everybody so that you can see them. Um, you are always welcome to reach out directly to me. I'm happy to provide the documents um, to anyone who would like them. There are amazing resources online. I always hesitate to say this because online is a dangerous place when we're talking about information. <laughs> but I do some to... bad information, yes. <laughs> There's bad information out there too. Um, one place that I'm sure most everyone has probably run into throughout their searching though is the Special Needs Alliance. There's a lot of really good information available on their website. That is a good, um, solid place to get information and to get started. Um, the Academy of Special Needs Planners is also another website that offers really solid information. I would hesitate to recommend that you chat with people online who say, well, I had a different experience or I did this because you don't know what state they're in. And these things really do vary by state. Even though when we talk about SSI and SSDI, those programs are federal, but Medicaid does vary by state. And so we really have to pay attention to the rules in our own state. That's one of the reasons why even when you work with an attorney on anything, like I'm licensed in Illinois, I'm licensed in another, another state as well, but I can't work with someone in Wisconsin because I'm not licensed there and I don't wanna give them bad advice. Uh, so those are a couple of places that they can go, but, you know, anyone's welcome to reach out to me. And of course, Lori, if we don't cover everything today, I'm happy to come back if anyone has a particular topic that they want us to discuss. Yes, absolutely. Just reach out to me and, you know, um, we're here again. We're not, we're not trying to sell you on Sarah and Darcy and their firm. We're trying to educate. We're trying to say, hey, there's resources out there. You don't have to be in the dark and definitely as you're approaching ages 16 or 17 start taking action is really what i hear so that there's a plan in place by the time a child reaches age 18. 
Um, so I'm definitely hearing that loud and clear, especially in the state of Illinois um, or whatever state you're you're in when you become that legal adult. So, um, you know, we're, we're just trying to kind of cover you and my heart as anybody who know, knows me know knows, um, you know, it is for students with disabilities. It's for the parents. You know, I want to advocate to say, you know, get help. And, um, you know, if I can do anything to help, that is definitely where my heart is. And I know Sarah well enough to know that's where her heart is as well. So the last thing that we mentioned, Sarah, that we haven't really talked too, too much about was um, kind of that path of um, first party um, trust. And the way you described it to me, it, it becomes the child with a disability, their own money. So can we talk a little bit about that as we, you know, think about coming up here? Absolutely. So you you got it, Laura. <laughs> you know, the individual with disability, it's their own money. So this is kind of a situation where, say, an ABLE account isn't enough, right? Maybe the individual is receiving a personal injury settlement that could even happen as a child um, or somebody has left them an inheritance that was not in a special needs trust, they're going to outright receive an inheritance from someone. And that amount is not appropriate for an ABLE account. So that's when we're talking about a first party special needs trust. The first party special needs trust is called that because it's their own money. The all the other terms that you're going to hear are OBRA, which stands for Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act of 1993. Um, <laughs> this is some high level that. stuff at this point, sir. <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> or you're often also going to hear it referred to as a payback trust. The reference to a payback is the distinguishing characteristic of this trust is that at the beneficiary's death, there is a payback provision. And that payback provision is going to pay back any and all states that have paid out of their Medicaid program for the beneficiary. So for example, the trustee at the death of the beneficiary is going to contact Medicaid and say, we need a payback number. Medicaid is going to respond after a long period of time and say, here's your payback. And if that amount of money is in the trust, the trustee is writing a check to Medicaid to pay that off. Um, if there's not enough money, so be it. They get what's left in the trust. Sometimes there's enough money in the trust that then money is left over and goes to ultimate remainder beneficiaries. But most of the time that money goes to Medicaid. That tends to scare people. They hear, oh my gosh, this money is going to go to Medicaid. Why would I do this? A couple of reasons why we do this. Again, we're trying to protect SSI and Medicaid benefits, Medicaid waiver programs, all of those things that are means tested or require you to have very low resource limits. Um, so we need that money sheltered from those programs so the programs aren't looking at it. The other thing is that this money is intended to be used during the beneficiary's lifetime. So we're not trying to keep it for their eventual death. We are holding this money aside so that SSI and Medicaid don't count it. And then we are using that money to supplement for things that Medicaid won't pay for, programs and services that Medicaid won't pay for, medications that Medicaid won't pay for, dental work. We are using it to supplement their lifestyle, the phone bill, 
you know, maybe your child likes to have an iPad with data coverage on it that's expensive and is paid monthly and that trust that they have can pay for those things. So the idea is that if there's anything left at the trust um, termination, which is the beneficiary's death, that sure, that amount is going to go back to Medicaid, but it's going to be so small that it's inconsequential. And you're going to work with um, your trustee and the trustee is going to be working with professionals who are going to help them use that money. Now, when we're talking about this OBRA first party payback trust, if your child has money and you need the OBRA trust, generally the parents are going to be the trustees. So the parents are going to know how to use this money. I work with a lot of parents and we talk about how to actually make trust disbursements, how to reimburse themselves for driving back and forth to the doctor's office, how to reimburse themselves when, you know, you go out to dinner as a family. Okay, you can't reimburse yourself for the whole dinner, but certainly for the portion that belongs to that beneficiary, you can reimburse yourself for that. So we're talking about how to use that money. And then, of course, there are other conversations about if you've done all these reimbursements, then how do the parents leave the money for the benefit of the child? So it all strings together. But this particular piece is just about what to do when the individual with a disability has too much money. We call it over-resourced. They just have too much that they don't qualify for SSI and or Medicaid. That's awesome. And I interrupted you when you were saying which act this was, because I was like, oh my gosh, now we're into high level things. So can you go back to when we talked about that first party trust, which act um, that was referencing so people can hear it more clearly? Of course, it's the Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act of 1993. There you go. And we will go ahead and put a, you know, more information about that um, into Sarah. And part of this, you know, our hope is to not overwhelm you. You know, our hope is to say, hey, there are decisions to be made and there are people to help you make those decisions. You know, there's Sarah and Darcy or, you know, any law firm that specializes in this, you know, their caution is don't just pick anybody, make sure it's in your state and they're qualified to do what they do. Um, and of course, my heart is, you know, I want the parents, you know, protected. I want the child protected. I want these decisions made so that, you know, um, both the educational, the financial, and the medical decisions, you know, to be covered. So, Sarah, thank you so much for just joining me today and starting the conversation, because I think we could probably do six more podcasts about every single one of these. But um, thank you for starting the conversation and sharing um, the road here that these parents are on. Um, I will let you say goodbye. And um, again, my name is Lori McDevitt. I'm from Advocacy for the Special Ones in Your Life. And thank you, Lori. It was my pleasure to be here today and to talk to you and hopefully give some good information to families. And it's my hope that all of you understand that there is help available to you. You don't have to go this alone and just reach out. There are resources available. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you very much. And please reach out to either one of us with questions. We'll put our contact information um, in the podcast description. Thank you.